If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. So, Wenzel, did you do anything to celebrate Martin Luther King Day? Well, I don't know if we call it a celebration, but it was wildly appropriate. I went to a training session on how to conduct oneself and what to expect when engaging in nonviolent protest, as we will be having... A Saturday. lot of nonviolent protests mm-hmm. coming up. So, yes, that's what I did with my day. And very, very in keeping with the spirit of the day. Thank you. And further in the spirit, we salute Baird Rustin, the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man. Including an encore of our conversation with his late partner, Walter Nagel, conducted in the New York City apartment they shared. And we'll strike a pose with the iconic dancers and backup singers from Madonna's 1990 Blonde Ambition Tour. But first, last week we ran an interview from 2015 with a gay Russian teen who fled his repressive Putin-led homeland. And some of you have asked how he's doing in 2017. And we're about to find out. Joining us by phone is Vladislav Slavsky. Vlad, are you there? Yes. Thank you so much for calling. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, everybody is wondering how you you were protesting at the Sochi Olympics and with all sorts of support from people like Billie Jean King, um, you made it here. How are things going in your life since you arrived? It's going pretty good. I'm going to school, getting education. Some things are upsetting, like the election. Yes. We're all upset. Very good. <laughs> it's definitely way better than it would be in Russia where I would just go to jail. Really? Yes. They were going to put me to jail for protesting at the Sochi Olympics and for talking to foreign journalists about the oppressive regime in Russia. Well, now, um, do you intend to take part in any of the protests here, which are legal? I'm not planning on protesting here currently because uh, there aren't many things happening where I live now in Pittsburgh. When you look at what's happening, and Russia, of course, is very much in the news and the allegations about the relationships between the president-elect and Putin, how does this strike you? What are your thoughts about this? I know that's a big question in a few minutes. I think it's very dangerous that uh, Donald Trump decided to be so friendly with such an evil dictator, Putin, and it's definitely going to harm human rights in different countries and everything that the United States has done for 
countries where human rights are not respected because right now I see that the new administration is not very concerned with promoting human rights around the world and that's definitely going to harm many people in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, because you, you've got a personal history with the Putin regime, when, you, when you're talking to regular run-of-the-mill American voters, whether they voted or not, um, as a nation, we tend to be very insulated and unaware of the way the rest of the world runs. I mean, do you, do you want to scream at them? <laughs> um, I, I feel like many people just have a comfortable life and because they don't know what it's like to not have human rights they don't appreciate it they don't know what it's like to be afraid to write something on facebook or tell somebody at work that you're gay or just be afraid that somebody finds out that you're gay or perhaps you're not normal whatever it's supposed to mean and I feel like many people in this country take freedoms for granted and forget that it can get worse. Because in the 90s, Russia had a good chance to become a better country, a Western country. But it failed because of Putin. It went from better to worse. Sure, some things weren't perfect in Russia in the 90s. In fact, many things weren't perfect. There was crime, mafia, and other things, but the culture was changing. The culture seemed like it's going to be better for people in the future. Uh, like they let gay people kiss on the TV, on the national TV, and that was kind of okay, even though most people didn't really approve it, but it wasn't a big deal. Well, get and out there and, and remind people how bad it can be, because I don't think people here realize that. Thank you so much for talking to us, but I'm afraid exactly. we're, we're short of time now, and we have to say goodbye, but thank you so much for checking in, and we will check back with you thank again. You. Thank you, Vlad. Bayard Rustin is the man homophobia almost erased from history. He not only organized the 1963 March on Washington, but taught Martin Luther King Jr.'s Gandhi's nonviolent resistance techniques. And on this day, we want to take a few minutes to honor the gay man who worked tirelessly in Martin Luther King's shadows to make a better world. Nancy Cates. I'm the co-director and co-producer of Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, who was best known as one of the chief advisors to Martin Luther King Jr. and the architect of the 1963 March on Washington, which at the time was the largest demonstration ever held in the history of the United States. It was the culminating event of the civil rights movement and the place where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And so people tend to remember that day only about the speech, but our film is about trying to find Bayard Rustin, this gay African-American civil rights hero, and take him out of the shadows of history. Although he was arrested 23 times for nonviolent protest, 
It was a different charge that pushed him behind the curtains. In 1953, Rustin was arrested in Pasadena, California for homosexual activity. Originally charged with vagrancy and lewd conduct, he pleaded guilty to a single, lesser charge of sexual perversion, as consensual sodomy was officially referred to in California back then, and he served 60 days in jail. This was the first time that his homosexuality had come to public attention. He had been, and remained, candid about his sexuality, although homosexuality was still criminalized throughout the United States. That was the reason he had been hidden from history, because he was gay. But the thing that really got me was he never stopped. He had a 60-year career as an activist. He started when he was 15, and he didn't stop until the day he died. And the commitment that he showed as an activist to all his beliefs and his values and to trying to change the world to make it more in line with his values, I thought was just an unbelievable thing for the rest of us to think about. Bayard Rustin devoted his life to a push for civil equality in all forms. He even spent three years in jail during World War II as a conscientious objector and traveled to India to study Gandhi's method of nonviolent protest firsthand. Then in 1955... A seasoned Rustin met a young, charismatic preacher from Alabama. He went down to Montgomery when Dr. King had just started organizing the Montgomery bus boycott. And Dr. King had studied Gandhi but didn't know anything about how to organize a direct action campaign. And it was right after Rustin had been arrested in Pasadena on the sex charge. So the other pacifists didn't want him there teaching Dr. King because he was considered tainted because he had been arrested on this gay sex charge in Pasadena, California only three years before. And there was actually a meeting held in New York City with 30 people to decide whether or not Bayard Rustin should stay in Montgomery because the people in New York who were trying to help this nascent civil rights movement in the South wanted his expertise there, but they didn't want him to taint the movement, which was so new that they could see the potential for that movement. And he, Rustin, could see it very clearly that this had to become a national movement and this was a way to really start to attack Jim Crow in the South. So they needed his brilliant mind, but they didn't want his gay identity. After instructing a young Martin Luther King on how to lead the famous bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, Rustin became the chief organizer of the 1963 Civil Rights March on Washington, D.C., the stage for King's I Have a Dream speech. I remember about 5.30 in the morning, I was out on the mall, and the press was surrounding me and I was saying, Mr. Rustin, Mr. Rustin, what's happening? You said there were going to be a quarter of a million people and there are scarcely a half dozen here. I remember taking out of my pocket a blank sheet of paper and taking my watch out of the other pocket. I looked at my watch in the blank sheet of paper and I said, gentlemen, everything is going according to Hoyle. And uh, I was terrified that people weren't going to show up. I am glad to report to you that the official count is that we have over 200,000 people in I now bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Ladies and gentlemen, the first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodation, decent housing, integrated education, FAPC, and the right to vote. 
What do you say? And before I'd be a slave. 25, 30 years ago, the barometer of human rights in the United States were black people. That is no longer true. The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves uh, gay, homosexual, lesbian. We are all one, and if we don't know it, we will learn it the hard way. And not only was Bayard Rustin an important social phenomenon, but he's also a great singer. That is his voice we hear in this piece. Yeah, that was a very important part of his life. He would, went to college on music scholarships, actually, and he was an accomplished baritone. Or maybe he was a tenor. Sounds like a baritone to me. So never make fun of a music major. Oh, never. A couple of years ago, Bayard Rustin's life partner, Walter Nagel, spoke with IMRU about their relationship and Rustin's legacy. I have a dream. I got a dream. So why don't you tell me your name? My name is Walter Nagel. I am a 62-year-old white male. I live in New York City, and my time is pretty much devoted at this point to preserving the legacy of Bayard Rustin and promoting information about him to the larger community, educating people about him. Will you tell me who Bayard Rustin was? Bayard Rustin was a significant figure in the advancement of the democratization of the United States in the 20th century. And that's a very general and a broad definition. Most people remember him as the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his very famous I Have a Dream speech. Bayard was 51, 52 years old at that point in his life, and he had 25, 30 years of actively organizing prior to that. He wasn't just involved in African-American civil rights issues. He was involved in what we think of nowadays as human rights issues before that term was really in the common nomenclature. He was working in anti-colonial movements abroad over in Africa. He was over in India during the end of the British colonization of India. He was working against the proliferation of atomic weapons. So he wasn't sort of a one-issue person, but the large umbrella issue was the whole issue of making the world safer and providing rights to all people all over the world. How did you meet Bayard? I met Bayard in 1977 in Times Square, kind of the crossroads of the world. And at that point, I was thinking of relocating to San Francisco. This was in April. And I was waiting on the corner to cross the street and go over to the store, and Bayard came along, and we were both standing there, and we just kind of looked at each other, and <laughs> lightning struck. I made it to the store. I got my newspaper, but I never made it out to San Francisco. And, you know, we were sort of dating, spending a lot of time together, weekends together for the first year or so, and then I pretty much moved in with him in his apartment. In New York City? Yeah, right here in this apartment that we're sitting in. Yeah, this is where we lived together for the 10 years that I was with him. Does your work now involve any sort of outreach? I work very closely 
with the makers of the documentary film Brother Outsider, The Life of Bard Rustin. We do a lot of appearances together because it's one thing to be talking to a group of people about someone, but when you have the visual and the audio images of that person that you can work with, it really gives the audience much more of a flavor and an idea of who that person actually was. The film came out in 2003, and you know, documentaries don't normally have a very long life. But there's something about Bard's story that I think people find inspiring. During Black History Month, during Gay Pride Month, there would be showings of the film, and we would make appearances doing Q&As or being on panel discussions about it. And it's been picked up as a diversity training tool in a lot of corporations and law firms. They will have like a diversity event, and they'll show the film and they'll have a discussion. And one of the things about this film is because of Bayard's many identities, his many hats, if you will. You know, he was African-American, he was gay, he was involved in various social movements. It's an opportunity to bring people to the same table that might not always be there. And so it really provides an opportunity, I think, for people to have dialogue that would not normally be engaged in those kinds of discussions. So I think it opens up a lot of doors. The film's also shown in a lot of schools. It's being used in the California curriculum, mainly in the high schools. It's really getting Bayard's message out there, but also the larger message about living your truth, being who you are, overcoming obstacles. I mean, he overcame tremendous obstacles during his life to become who he was. And I think it's inspiring in that way. I mean, it's not a film about a perfect man. It's not a film about a saint. In that way, I think kids can look at it and see, this is a hero. This is somebody I could become as opposed to looking at a film about someone else who shall remain nameless. But, you know, that person was so perfect I could never become that person. This is somebody that had the same struggles that I have. You know I'm going to ask you to name that person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not the person's fault. It's largely the culture. I mean, the culture likes to create these heroes, these idols, not even heroes, idols, people that you kind of worship, you know a lot of entertainment figures, people like that. And I think um, it's interesting, in the, in the latest book that came out about Bayard, it's a collection of his letters. In one of the letters, he says something to the effect that they're doing to Dr. King the same thing that they did to Gandhi. This was after King died. They're turning him into a figure of veneration, a figure to worship, as opposed to an inspirational figure. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, someone like Dr. King... Certainly someone like Gandhi, people didn't think of these people as saints. And of course they weren't. They were very human. And I think as historians do their research and write books and things about it, these people and their human frailties come out. And I think that's all to the good. I think it's healthier. But, you know, I think there's something in human nature that kind of wants gods. We've created a god, if you will. And in some ways that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think you want people that can inspire you and to guide you along the journey, not show you how weak or how imperfect you are. We also have a tendency to sort of deny certain things, too. And if we don't think of people as human and capable of making mistakes, if you will, or making errors of judgment, if you kind of hold them to this perfect standard, then you're going to be disappointed. And one of the ways of dealing with the disappointment is just to kind of push it aside and deny that it ever happened. To a certain degree, some of that used to happen with Bayer too in some quarters, but um, I think it's important to 
accept your leaders with their faults as well as their leadership abilities and their positive aspects. You really you have to embrace the whole person. What are some of the things and ways or obstacles that Bayard had? And I also like for you to tell me some of the ways that he is really inspirational to people. Bayard had baggage, if you will. When he first came to New York, he had a brief flirtation of affiliation with the Young Communist League. Because at that time, the Communist Party was really one of the few organizations that was dealing with the issue of racial discrimination, segregation, racial injustice. They had a committee to end discrimination in the military. And in the early days of World War II, the Communist Party was against World War II. And so they were out there agitating people to resist you know, service, do that kind of thing. And that was consistent with Bayard's own beliefs. But then when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they just did it about face, like overnight. And they told Bayard to disband his committee to end discrimination. And he felt that, you know, this was uh, unwarranted, untrue, if you will, not faithful to the reasons that he joined the League. And so he, he just left. Another thing was he was a draft resistor, a conscientious objector during World War II. And World War II, we always think of that as the good war. It was the fight against Hitler and Nazism. And so taking that kind of a position was not very popular at the time. And of course, the third thing was the fact that he was gay. He was homosexual. And he was arrested on a morals charge in 1953 out in Pasadena, California. Morals charge? Well, what they used to call back then morals charge, lewd vagrancy, that kind of thing. He was discovered in the backseat of a car with two guys, like, I don't know, it was like, I think, one or two in the morning on a back street. And, you know, he was arrested and he did time in, in the local jail. And so when people wanted to attack the movement, Bayard was any kind of a visible presence. They would kind of go for the juggernaut. They would go for him. And it's, they would, you know, here's this commie pinko fag leading the civil rights movement or organizing these demonstrations. And they got away with that for quite a number of years. But as far as overcoming the obstacles, Bayard was someone who was very strong. He had a very strong sense of identity. He had tremendous personal courage. He was out there in the 1940s sometimes by himself, sometimes with three or four other activists going into the South and riding on trains and buses, going into restaurants, being arrested, and really risking their lives. I mean, they could have been lynched. And so he had a really strong sense of himself and a strong sense of standing up to evil, if you will. And so he was not discouraged or he was not defeated by these continuous attacks. Where he was disappointed in the fact that the leadership, including Dr. King, did not support him. You know, when these threats came to light, they would say, okay, well, we got to ditch rest them for a while, or we got to send them into the shadows or whatever. So he would kind of disappear off the, off the scene for a while. But then when the 1963 march came, Strom Thurmond tried the same thing. It was about two weeks before the march. He got up on the Senate floor and read into the Senate record, you know, Bayard's arrest record and all of this stuff. And that was the time when the civil rights leadership, under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph, who was really the dean of the civil rights movement, that was the time when they rallied around Byron. Mr. Randolph was kind of telling people to step into line here, if you will. It was two weeks before the march. The tremendous organization had gone into it. It was going to happen one way or the other. It was like a train coming down the track. There was no way to really turn it around. And so finally... The United leadership, you know, with Mr. Randolph as their spokesman, 
came out and made a statement on behalf of Byard's character. And because of that, you know, it kind of eliminated the opportunities of people to do that kind of thing in the future. You know, it pulled the rug out. And I'm not going to say that people didn't try it. People did try it. But at that point, it was like, you know, all of this stuff, it's out there, it's in the national news, it's on the front page of the newspapers. So that's it. There's nothing more to be said about it. So they united around him and supported him as the deputy director of the march, and things moved forward. So what would you say were some of Byard's greatest accomplishments? I guess if you had to say one thing, you know, you would say the March on Washington. And it was an accomplishment. I mean, people look at the March on Washington, and they always associate it with Dr. King. You know, Dr. King gave the greatest speech on that day, and possibly the greatest speech of his life. There were many other people that spoke that day. Byard spoke or read the demands of the march that day. But what you need to think about is Washington at that time was just pretty much a southern city. It was a segregated city. There were not a lot of places where African Americans could stay, eat, do that kind of thing. I mean, people were terrified of the march. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. The Kennedy administration was lobbying and working against it. They finally had to just give in to it and cooperate with it, but they were terrified. Businesses closed down. Certainly all of the liquor stores in Washington area were closed that day, and people left the city because they were afraid. We think of the I Have a Dream speech, which was really the last speech of the day, I think, but what would have happened had violence broken out? That speech might have never been delivered. And so it was because of the masterful organization of Byron that really gave the platform, gave the opportunity for that speech to be delivered. So I think you know, that was a, truly a great accomplishment. But I think more importantly, he was largely responsible for showing Americans a way to nonviolently petition your government, whether it be your local government or the national government, to organize nonviolently, to be out there and demonstrating and to achieve gold. He'd gone over to India and studied with the heirs of Gandhi after Gandhi was assassinated. And he really learned, I think, the mechanics and the ideas behind really bringing large groups of people together. That was the main thing that he really offered to Dr. King. I have a dream. I got a dream. I don't know where people come up with that kind of courage, frankly. It, you know, I was just thinking that Bayard's example is as relevant today as it was then. He was fiercely authentic. I know. And no one was going to push him down, and he wasn't pushed down. And we can now learn from that example. You know, it is times like this uh, that we realize the civil rights movement is not history. No, no, it's not over. And trailblazers come in all shapes and sizes and in different forums. So still to come, we're going to talk to some of those trailblazers, Madonna's backup dancers and singers who had their own amazing journey uh, that you might not have seen in the 1991 movie Truth or Dare. They are featured in a new documentary called Strike a Pose, of course. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King's mentor, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Bayard Rustin was a major player in the civil rights movement. He planned the 1963 March on Washington, which brought more than 200,000 people to the nation's capital to demonstrate for civil rights. It was there that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. 
Rustin was much influenced by a trip he took to India in 1948, where he learned of Mahatma Gandhi's success with nonviolent activism. When he became Martin Luther King's major advisor and mentor, Rustin inspired King to dedicate himself to fighting by nonviolent means. Because Rustin was known to be gay, many white and African-American leaders insisted King distance himself from Rustin. This forced Rustin to work behind the scenes, but he nonetheless had a paramount role in the effort to end racial segregation and racial discrimination. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Andrea Westcott. Hi, I'm Alec Mappa, and you're listening to IMRU on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 China Lake, and 93.7 in San Diego. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. A new documentary called Strike a Pose is opening across the country over the next few weeks. It captures the life of seven of Madonna's young male dancers, six were gay, one was straight, who in 1990 joined Madonna on her most controversial stage tour, Blonde Ambition. They were also profiled in the 1991 documentary, Truth or Dare. Climbing aboard a superstar juggernaut is a lot like riding a tiger. And as the Chinese proverb goes... It's extremely tricky when you dismount. So a few months ago, we gathered three of the dancers and the backup singers around the conference table upstairs for this conversation. Hello, I am Carlton Wilborn, and I'm one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour. I'm Kevin Stay, and I'm also one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour, also dance captain and associate choreographer. Hi, guys. My name is Luis Camacho. I'm also one of the dancers of the Blonde Ambition Tour and co-choreographer of the Vogue video. Hi, my name is Donna DeLore, and I sang and danced on that Blonde Ambition Tour. Hi, I'm Nikki Harris, and I'm one of the singers, dancers, and uh, all-around pain in the butt on the Blonde Ambition <laughs> yes, Tour. Yes, a spiritual goddess. And spiritual goddess, yes. yes. The question I have for the women specifically is the Blonde Ambition Tour was so much a gay thing. You were surrounded by these gay male dancers and they were orbiting around a gay male icon. Where was your place in that universe and how did you assert yourself? I felt very comfortable. I didn't feel like I really had to assert myself. Nikki and I had started working with Madonna in 1987. So we'd already been on one round of uh, Camp Madonna and we'd already done our first tour being very young. Yeah. Actually, the gay thing for me, also because we were dancers, too. We had been around yeah, dancers. So that's being, another thing. 
you know, that was not a big deal I for grew us. Up. What no, was a big deal is that we were in a much more quieter way of living as far as our lifestyle. So this was the first time that we were around dancers who were definitely saying, Lewis gave me my first fragrance. Kevin <laughs> gave me my first... <laughs> Tell your boyfriend that. Actually, he was the first time that a man came to me and said, I know you like me, but I'm gay. I was like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just the all. I was completely in love with Slam. Yeah. I mean, the moment he walked in, really? I mean, everybody. But I was just like, uh, he was just the most beautiful. And he is still beautiful. He's just oh, not here yeah. today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everyone in this room is beautiful. I have to say, everybody got better. Yeah, <laughs> that's one huge perception from the film is how interested I am in all of you. When I watched the film. I was really struck by how confident all of you looked way back when, 25 years, I can't believe it. I'm a singer, and seeing you just grabbing it as singers and seeing you guys grabbing it as men, as these dancers. And then when I saw the film, I saw what vulnerable kids you were. And you even described yourselves that way a little bit, and Madonna was sort of this mom figure. Did you have any idea at the time how people were viewing you or what it meant to people to view you? Not at all. There was no social media for us to have sort of an immediate feedback of, right. of people's response. So we just did our show and then we rushed off to the next city. So there really wasn't this sense of a response of understanding how we were landing with people other than the regular fans would just come and scream. <laughs> so we, we didn't really have an understanding of any, anything of that. Yeah, depth. I mean, at the venues when the shows were happening or when we went in to do our sound check because they would allow some of the audience to come in early and you know that sort of ramp up in their energy we could tell and Lewis says it in the film that they would be screaming out all of our names mm -hmm. you know or we'd see a banner with Donna and mm -hmm. Kevin and Nikki and everybody so we could see it like that but to be aware of it after the job was over, not so much. And it yeah. seems like the impact is something that's continued. Like yes. it, the bigger impact is really not just the show and the entertainment value of the show, but sort of the impact on how people felt freer to express themselves over time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the impact that has continued, when I was watching the flashbacks to Truth or Dare, which I haven't seen since it came out, it looked as if you guys were softening the ground for the tidal wave of reality programming that we're now mm -hmm. swimming in. Because that was the first time when I look back and you think, oh, that's when we got used to cameras just being up in everybody's face in bed and doing what people do. I mean, of course, you couldn't have known it at the time, but how does it feel to look back and think, wow, I was there at the birth practically? Well, to be clear, there are a lot of concert movies. I think this film was the first in that it kind of delved more into... Sex, I think, is the word we're looking for. <laughs> or that. <laughs> Social issues. But, well, and into the lives, into our lives. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a concert movie. It, mm. it was really a documentary into backstage. And it was also her willingness to be exposed and to share herself behind the scenes, looking bad or being bitchy or whatever it was that she was sharing. Like, that's unheard of. Stars are very careful with their images and they give forth a very, you know, carved little presence and, and she was just much more open and free like that. Her view is what created this whole sense of reality TV. And as we all wonder now when we watch reality TV, how much of it was scripted or was it truly reality that far back? Well, I mean, you know, all of that is subject because mm -hmm. to some degree, once I say 
can you guys sit over here or come and stand over there <laughs> or come and let's back in light. again <laughs> do it again no it ain't organically real every reality project that we witness is sculpted to some degree yeah i think what happened was as we were on tour things would happen like we started on our own with a film crew playing Truth or Dare at dinners. Oh, yeah. In Spain with oh, yeah. Drinking Sangria playing Truth That's or right. Dare. And then it got around, you know, I'm sure Alec <laughs> totally. heard about it. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, ooh, let's That's do that with Madonna at dinner. Yeah. So things were, they were organically happening between us. Yeah. And then it would, it would spark an idea to have right. that be a yeah. scene. And then we were all at a dinner and we all played together. <laughs> and then things spontaneously obviously happened. And Donna and Nikki, you had been doing this with Madonna for a while. This was not new to you. This was new in many ways to you guys and the other four dancers. This exposure to that level of fame and the Madonna frenzy that happened in the film Strike a Pose really goes into sort of the unexpected effects of that on you guys. But did you sort of look at them and kind of go, oh, we've been down this road. We know a little bit about what to expect. I know that I didn't. I knew I was older than them, but I was young enough that we had seen Madonna turn into a pop star. So we had Mm -hmm. got to that part. And we knew by this tour that she was a bona fide superstar. We knew that. We also... Well, you know, we, we got to go through Sean with her. We got to go through the entrance of Warren Beatty. We had done soundtracks with her. We've done albums. Worship. So all kind of stuff like that. But what we did not get to do is see her really put her life around her dancers mm-hmm. the way she had done with them. And then you throw on top of that putting a camera around it all, too. Mm-hmm. So I think Warren said it best. This is really what you really want to do. Who would think somebody would want to have a camera follow? Right. Well, Apparently everybody. Apparently everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe, and maybe. I mean, and I guess that is still the $6,000 question. Really? Does everybody want it? I don't know if everybody wants it because some people still find it really hard to tell the truth, especially on camera. Especially on camera. That's what this movie shows. Because there's some unsaids in this movie that are said very loudly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course we were young like you guys, and that was probably my favorite tour ever. And... But the one thing I did notice was you guys had endless amounts of energy to go out after the show. We'd be meeting for like a tea or something. <laughs> and there you guys are after the show, dressed up in these clothes. <laughs> and it was inspiring. <laughs> and then we'd be like, we got to go out too. Come on. To the crack of dawn. Let's go. And you always knew where you were going. Oh, that, that was, was crazy. So and that, much, these were the first people made me feel like I didn't know nothing. <laughs> I was so green. Like, like, are you you really gonna wear that? You know you really could put some fragrance on. You know you really are you really gonna wear your hair like that? And I'm like, I felt bad. Like I'm older, but yet they're telling I'm like, I guess I'm not. I'm not wearing these earrings with this. And how do you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Exactly. I don't know where to go in Chicago. You know where to go in Tel Aviv? There is a secret gay network that preceded the internet, and I it's it's a boy gay network, and it still exists. I want to hear about it. I never had a membership to it. (laughs) No, really. How did you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Uh, I'm not even really sure. It was always just a matter. Go in Tel Aviv. On this one, we didn't go to Tel Aviv, but certainly like Spain and Madrid and like and like Amsterdam. I think people came to us. Come well, out yeah. to the come out to this club yeah, tonight. Totally, we were like, totally, okay, totally. I heard that there's a something something, yeah. and we're all gonna go. And then yeah. once we all decided on that, then we're our own party. We can go anywhere. Well, there was always <laughs> that one person that stayed behind, mm-hmm. that 
followed us to the hotel yeah. that yeah. hung out in the lobby that would us. and yeah. they would talk us up and invite us somewhere and we were like sure let's go yeah. as well as it's hard to sleep when there's thousands of people down at the bottom of your hotel oh, yeah. Yeah. Ma, ma, ma. We, like, might well, we might as well go out y'all because that's why we were so high from the adrenaline you yeah. know just a reminder, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And we're in a studio filled with folks from Madonna's 1990 Blonde Ambition Tour, talking about that tour, their lives, Madonna, the 1991 film Truth or Dare, and the 2017 documentary Strike a Pose. Let me ask you a little bit about somebody who is not in the film today and apparently loved by everyone, was Gabriel. And Gabriel uh, passed away from HIV, and I'm just wondering if you could share some of your memories of Gabriel and what he brought to this group. Where do we start? Where do we start? He was just just beautiful, and and, and it was one of those, like, not because I had a, that kind of crush on you. <laughs> Gabriel had this, like, oh, my God, he's just so precious. Like right. I always thought of Gabriel like aesthetically and energetically as like a cherub. Mm-hmm. He was just like this beautiful, beautiful. delicate, but owning space mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, he was just a gentle force. Oliver in the film, who is the one straight fellow of the of the dancers, I, I love his story of him sort of having getting over his stuff was so, so sweet. But he described Gabriel as innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That sounds right. It's not that he was innocent, but it was right. just that his energy yeah. about it was always so positive and bright mm-hmm. and light and giving, and the way he moved was so beautiful. There was a beauty about him mm-hmm. always. He was an enigma to yeah. me and Jose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, me and Jose came from the low east side of New York, so what's your we scam? Did, we didn't have a lot of friends that were like Gabriel. Yeah. Just you know, we. So I don't know. He was just so. Nice. As yeah. well as, <laughs> as, well as you know? so, be, uh, I will say this in front of my two brothers, I love y'all down, but Kevin and Gabriel were two of the first dancers that I was always going, how the hell they do that? How did they do that? They tumbled, they danced, they could do ballet, they did everything and looked effortless doing it. Just like, I was like, are they about to, do? he just flipped four times, he just did a flip and he got this much room. How's he doing that? How is he doing that? Between you and Gabe, I used to just be in awe at watching you guys dance every night. I think all of us kind of wanted to be around him a lot. I know for myself, if I ever wanted to go anywhere or I'd go have dinner or go shopping or go walking around or go explore anything, he was the first person I called. Mm-hmm. Always. Because I knew I'd have a good time. I knew it'd be relaxing. It would be fun. Mm-hmm. I knew I could share anything I wanted to with him and it would all be accepted and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I looked to Gabriel if I ever wanted just a quiet conversation. Mm-hmm. It was Gabriel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we had all this energy, and it was like yeah. the kiki was always with us. But if I just wanted just a respite from that, I would turn to Gabriel. And that's who he was for me. One of the things that the film goes into in great detail, three of the seven dancers were HIV positive. And one of the things the film talks about that is so moving to me is that none of the men that were HIV positive shared this with anybody. Everybody was quiet about it. And in many ways, Strike a Pose is a coming out story about this. I am one of the three. I was diagnosed in 1985. And the beauty about this project right now is it's allowing me, because I'm so on the other side of it, the it being all the shame and the 
just the self chastisement thing that was going on I'm so on the other side of that mm -hmm. and so it's amazing right now so that feels like the coming out like what's coming out is my joy mm -hmm. of life mm -hmm. and my freedom <clears throat> to be authentically me mm. across the board that's beautiful yeah really beautiful and we've seen one of our own pass Gabriel passed from this and didn't even share it I asked him point blank mm -hmm. are you HIV positive do you have AIDS he said no closest person to me I like couldn't even share it with me it definitely shows how, how far we've come yeah. it shows how much progress we've made I remember at that time being so scared I remember one time I was dating someone and we were getting intimate it was in the evening and somebody Ooh, called tell. me right? <laughs> somebody <laughs> called me can you imagine answering the phone you you have a date someone's over at your home and they say, Donna, I just got to let you know, he's HIV positive. Wow. Yeah. So you put your clothes back on and left? <laughs> well, it wasn't, we hadn't gotten, you know, we were like just kissing and stuff. But I, and right. who knows? Maybe no, he, right. 10 minutes later, he's going to tell me, right. you know? Right, right. But that I got that phone call. And that was the reality we mm. were all living in. Mm. I remember going to get my own test mm -hmm. and thinking it could be me. Right. And this was before the antiretrovirals. I mean, this was when HIV was pretty much a guarantee death sentence the question was when absolutely it was a question of when yes yeah. and especially if you didn't have money yeah contacts and so if you were a person especially of color yeah you knew it was a death sentence mm -hmm. yeah. what have your lives been like outside of the you know traveling with hiv or the blonde ambition tour i mean what have your lives been like outside of that because you've all accomplished things, they just weren't really brought up in the movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been working as an actor from before I got the Blonde Ambition Tour. So a lot of what I do is still in that realm. I've done a slew of national commercials and films and TV shows. I have been writing and coaching and my life coaching work, which is the first ever movement based through dance life coaching program called Dance Formation. So I've been traveling around. I now do events with that and building out some other cool entertainment projects. And Kevin? Oh, my. Uh, well, I don't think I've ever really stopped doing what we were doing back in the day. <laughs> I landed off after tour and literally just auditioned the next day and kept going. Mm. And I've never stopped. And it's really not because I have to be a dancer forever. It was just I'm compelled to. It's such a part of me now and such a part of my expression and who I am and such an opportunity. To, the people that I've worked with over the past 26 years are my family. And why wouldn't I want to continue working with my family, seeing my family, hanging out with the people that I love, earning money and doing fun things in fun situations in exciting cities and exciting countries? I'm having a hard time giving it up, honestly. <laughs> Sometimes your body has other ideas, though. <laughs> well, I did have my hip replaced last year. And, uh, and I was back in class a month later. And, and, and to see him <laughs> dance, you have no freaking idea he ever had surgery. You and Liza Minnelli. Me and Liza I was just going to say hashtag Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and Lewis? My life has been a little twisty, turny. And I don't regret any of that because it's brought me to this situation today. So, but we, me and Jose recorded a, a little album after, it wasn't really an album, it was actually three songs on a compilation album. Which I heard a little snippet of in the film and I thought, okay, yeah. I need to go get that and yeah. put that on my workout playlist. <laughs> it sounded great. It was fun to do. But these days, I work a lot with this charity called Aid for AIDS, the Alliance for housing and healing because this 
is not only a gay disease. This disease does affect women and families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this charity directly gives monies to families who are displaced due to HIV and AIDS, and it provides medication and housing for people who are affected with HIV. Donna? I ended up doing six world tours with Madonna. And, and wow! You're like the Michael Jordan of Madonna tours. Um, Your voice is more Madonna though. than Madonna. Okay. <laughs> um, I started making my own records in 1992, and I've been continuing on. I've made a lot of records in the yoga, world music, devotional genre, and started working with Nikki on this amazing project, which I'm so excited about. Two friends. So they I'm just really released excited. a song. We released a song. Yes! a cover of Rain. Yes. Can we hear a little bit? What key should we do, do it we in? Are you serious? You really want us to yeah. sing? Yeah. You like, don't mind to sing. Feel it on my fingertips. Hear it on my window pane. Your love's coming down like rain. Wash away my sorrow. Take away my pain. Your love's coming down like rain. Uh, what? Is that a blend or is that a blend? I mean, the whole room just lit okay. up. Oh like, everything started bouncing yeah, off the walls. I, I want everybody's favorite Blonde Ambition memory. So many memories of that tour. This is Donna, by the way. Sometimes I'll be like waking up or going into a dream or something mm. and things will pop back feelings of us all being out to dinner in Paris. Yes. The yeah. one that is really strong that I love and I think you guys can all relate to is at the very end of the tour, Madonna said to us, we're going to do the MTV Awards. Yeah. And the feeling that this is going to continue on, this creativity, yeah. and that we were all so sad to be saying goodbye, but we didn't have to really because we were going to be seeing each other. Right. And then we were all brainstorming about what the theme should be and putting in our yeah. two cents and being creative. And then went on shortly after that to do that performance. Well, first of all, I'm too old to remember what I had for lunch, so I sure don't remember much about a tour that was in 1990. No, so many waves. It's waves of feeling. Mm. So the gentleness of laying in beds that we were taking naps in together. <clears throat> As a musician, her allowing Don and I to really have some freedom to say, let's try this, let's try the groove this way. Let's put in that, you know, the keep it together is one of our, my favorite parts of the, sh of the show. Okay, let's try to put a little sly in there. The band was funky. We had this amazing bass player, Daryl Jones, who's now with the Stones. We're like, let's, let's use that. And whereas we didn't really do that in Who's That Girl, we, I, I kind of came in and we just like, here's the parts, here's the outfits, don't say nothing. This one, it was like, no, let's try it this way. So that more collaborative feeling. Yes. That's where I got caught up in the like, we're, this is really a family, right? Because we're doing this together, right? Oh, oh, it's going in. Oh. Um, yeah. But I think because we had that collaborative feeling on so many levels, whether it be dancing, whether it be music, whether it be singing, creating arrangements together, that somewhere in our soul, we told ourselves, she can say goodbye, we ain't saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that has been really the greatest memory for me that, I, that continues to hold me up when I'm having moments. And we've all had those moments that gets to be talked about in Striker Pose. Clearly, some people are still having the moments. But if I think it's gone, then it's gone. But it never ends. The music never dies. The dance never ends. And that's the perfect note to end on. Thanks, Kevin, Carlton, Lewis, Nikki, and Donna for sharing your stories with us. The documentary is called Strike a Pose. For IMRU Radio, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. Don't go for second best, baby. Put your love to
And I must applaud Steve Pride for the edit on that interview, because if you watch the Facebook Live version, it was, um, how would you refer to it? It was a family reunion and dance circus. It was. At, together at the same time. Herding cats. And it was a lot of fun. I absolutely enjoyed being with that group of people in that room. I mean, the energy was, it was very it, difficult to make sense of who was coming and going, but the joy um, and the love was. It was incredible. A it was really incredible. It was. I mean, now it sounds like we had the most dignified Tea Party discussion because <laughs> he made it so clear, but oh, it was just people yelling, yelling, laughing. Yeah. And crying. I love the fact that it made as much of an impact on them as it yeah. did us, the audience. Yeah, it was very fun. It was so very cool. Art hits everybody. It was great to hear it again. Find out more about Strike a Pose at MadonnaDancers.com. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board up Federica Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. As we approach the inauguration and everything that may mean for LGBT equality and issues, I'm reminded of a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. We close with a song from Bayard Rustin that's appropriately enough called Scandalize My Name. Good Good night. night. I met my brother the other day and I gave him my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Do you call that a brother? No, no, do you call that a brother? No, no, do you call that a brother? No, no, he scandalized my name. I met my sister the other day, I gave her my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, she scandalized my name. Do you call that a sister? No, no. Do you call that a sister? No, no. Do you call that a sister? No, no. She took and scandalized my name. I met my preacher the other day. I gave him my right hand. Soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Do you call that a preacher? Uh-uh. Do you call that a preacher? Uh-uh. Do you call that a preacher? No, no. He scandalized my